Well, if, if you're okay, I'm going to just start in with maybe some introductory questions. Would that be all right? Sure. Well, I'll follow your lead. So the first thing I ever read from Walter Brueggemann was his book On the Land and his book On the Psalms. And I read these, I don't know, mid-90s, and um, they were good. But then it was sometime, I'm thinking, around 2003, 2004, and I was in seminary. And I was taking this summer class, and it was a readings course. And one of the books I read was The Prophetic Imagination. And I, I just remember going to Panera to get some coffee and start in on this book. And I sat down and thought, I'm going to make myself read for a couple of hours here. And I cracked it open, and I start reading. And I start highlighting and underlining and marking and scribbling in the margins. And um, I wake up, and it's lunchtime, and I am still engrossed in this book. Well, uh, in, in, in the Old Testament, uh, as you know and your members will know, the uh, Ten Commandments were given at Mount Sinai, and the Sabbath stands at the very center of the Ten Commandments. And the argument that I've made is that the Ten Commandments uh, that were given at Mount Sinai were given uh, to this people that had just escaped the slavery of uh, Pharaoh in Egypt. And uh, the proposal that I've made is that Pharaoh also had Ten Commandments. So I grab some food and sit down and keep reading. And finally, like 5.30 or 6, I tell myself, I've got to get home. And I'm reading and rereading and marking this book. And something um, inside me is firing in response to his words in a way that very few books and very few authors have ever been able to do for me. Walter Brueggemann is one of those rare scholars who um, can do like top-notch biblical scholarly criticism, but then who has as his primary audience just normal everyday people who are struggling to make sense of the scripture and to help it um, or to allow it to shape their imagination. The Ten Commandments uh, from Sinai are a resistance to the commandments of Pharaoh and an alternative uh, so that in Pharaoh's Egypt uh, there was no Sabbath rest for anybody and certainly not for the brick-making slaves and therefore uh, Sabbath needs to be understood in its practicality of actual rest uh, as a uh, momentary and quite self-conscious resistance uh, to the endless work requirements uh, that were imposed by Pharaoh. So that when you transpose that uh, matter from the ancient world to our contemporary world, uh, the argument that I would want to make is that the dominant commandments uh, under which we live uh, come out of our uh, industrial uh, consumerism uh, that 
says that you got to stay in the rat race of more production, more earning of income, of more consumption, of more shopping, of more acquiring, of more things that you got to have if you want to be happy. Brueggemann is one of those guys who has the courage to tell the truth about what he sees in the scripture, especially as it compares to what he sees in our society and in the world, plus the hermeneutical chops to pull it off with, um, you know, widespread scholarly critical acceptance. Sabbath is a day, but it is also a way of life who says that those pharaonic, pharaonic is an adjective of pharaoh, those pharaonic requirements of endless production and endless consumption are phony, and that as much as we can, we refuse to participate in that rat race. But I should say that one, well, well two uh, measures of the rat race that are imposed upon us, because if you ask people uh, what's a main problem in your life, most people will say, I don't have enough time. Pharaoh keeps us busy. So one measure of that uh, uh, busyness that keeps us from living a reflective life is our electronic connection. Uh, so that people cannot be away from their phone for 13 seconds. Uh, my wife and I were in a restaurant last night, and there was a two-year-old baby sitting there looking at the phone. And when they got up to leave, the baby cried because they took a phone away from her. And I would say that baby was acting like almost all adults. The second measure of uh, Pharaoh's uh, imposition on us, I believe, is the uh, rat race of endless uh, sports activity for kids. Mm. Would you drive all over creation to get kids to the next soccer practice? Uh, and the deal is uh, that kids must be satiated that they have to have this on their dossier because it will look good because if it doesn't look good on their dossier, they won't get ahead and they will fall behind and lose out in the capitalist economy, blah, 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 blah. So I think those are two signs of uh, what it's like to have your life contained in Pharaoh's requirements and the Sabbath is the disciplined assertion uh, that I'm not going to have my life shaped by such expectations. I love that he writes not just with the academy in mind, but with the local church and especially the local pastor in mind. In particular, when he's talking about the prophetic office, he, he sometimes will talk about what he calls celebrity prophets. These, you know, men and women who have 
a certain amount of fame within Christian circles and they write books and they tour around and give these talks and they're on all the radio shows. And I mean, just go on any popular podcast, including this one, and you'll, you'll find, you know, a growing list of people who are what he would call celebrity prophets. And Brueggemann always emphasizes how easy it is to do that. It's easy to be the celebrity prophet who breezes into a town, drops bombs and then breezes out. And that, that even, it plays, um, even a vital role in imagination, but it's harder, he says, to be just a a pastor who has to stick around. Yes. My, uh, my dad was a rural pastor in, uh, Saline County, which is near Marshall, Marshall, Missouri was our county seat town. Uh, that's a, uh, Marshall's about uh, 60 miles east of Kansas City. He preached once once a month in German until 1946 for some old people who uh, still needed to hear that. Uh, uh, the the uh, transition uh, to English uh, basically happened in the 1920s, but it was a lingering issue for a lot of people. What what about your just nuclear family siblings? What how did you grow up as a family? I had one brother. He uh he was certainly my best friend. He died uh last year. Uh he also we were ordained together. We went to seminary together and were ordained and then he also became a pastor uh, in the United Church of Christ. He uh, um, he began in the Midwest, but most of his ministry was in New Hampshire. Uh, for a long time, he was uh, a conference minister in uh, New Hampshire, which is our term for uh, the uh, leader of a, of a middle judicatory in the church. Uh, I see. And he did that work for a long time. Then he had a long retirement before he died. In our particular uh, uh, church, Elmhurst was our only church-related college, and Eden was our only seminary. So it was a pipeline, and when I graduated from Elmhurst, uh, 30 of my classmates went with me to Eden Seminary, and we all graduated together. So that was a, a kind of a, in those days, that was wow. a, a recurring pattern. When When did you begin to think that you might become a biblical scholar? Uh, that sort of happened to me in my um, second year of seminary. Uh, my my teachers in Old Testament uh, uh, began to channel me in that direction. I had never thought about it. I didn't know anything about going to graduate school. And uh, they kind of uh, walked me into it. And then uh, I discovered, I thought I was going to be a pastor, but later on I discovered that uh, I didn't have near the patience that is required to be a pastor, <laughs> so it was a good uh, it was a good vocational move for me to do something else. <laughs> you can't just deliver a message and leave; you have to stay there. And he says this is much more hazardous. He's talked about that we're just living in a time and place when local churches have to stay on the cultural criticism when they have to be courageous and speak into the life of the world. 
And Brueggemann has um, inspired me to do that and then taught me how to do it because he writes with the local church in mind and with the local pastor in mind. I sometimes think that guys like Walter Brueggemann, um, who just have immersed themselves for literally decades, you know, 50, 60 years in the world of the Bible, especially for him in the world of the Psalms and the prophets and the Old Testament, um, that he, he almost, I think, takes on in my imagination the persona of an, an old school, legit Old Testament prophet. In the capitalist economy, blah, 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 blah. This kind of wild-eyed, gray-haired old man who shouldn't be as cool as he is, but he's insanely cool. I'm a Cardinal fan. When I was growing up, there were no Royals. There were only the Cardinals. <laughs> who will stand up in front of a, peop- a group of people and sort of close his eyes and begin to reach into his own imagination and into the Scripture. The rat race of more production, more earning of income, of more consumption, of more shopping, of more acquiring, of more things that you got to have. And will talk with such clarity, both about the world of the text and about the world in which we live. Uh, That I'm not going to have my life shaped by such expectations. His ability to read the text and read the culture and to do both with clarity and accuracy is just unparalleled. Well, um, um, my, my uh, life was very much uh, contained in the life of the congregation. The only uh, uh, people in town were us and uh, Missouri Synod Lutherans and uh, they didn't want to speak to us, so... (laughs) I think one of the things that I learned from Walter Brueggemann that that has remained lodged in my imagination, I think about it a lot, is the idea that within the life of Israel, there were the prophets and there were the priests. And uh, Missouri Lutherans. And the priests were basically in charge of the bureaucracy. They made the the buses run on time and they managed the religious life of Israel and were in some respects sort of like lawyers. They did they did a lot of lawyering kinds of things. And then there were the prophets who were the counter-testimony. They were the the voice of the people and especially um, the voice of those who lived on the margins or essentially the people who were getting screwed by the bureaucracy. That's that's who the, the, the prophet spoke for. I've heard him do it often. He'll note how important it was to the longevity of Israel and to the life of Israel that the prophets could never abolish the priests and the priests could never abolish the prophets, that the two had to find a way to live together without killing each other or silencing each other. And part of what I've taken from that and part of why I think it's so important for his life is he chose a side. I mean, he's kind of on on the side of the prophets. Um, You'll find no no better imaginative voice for those living on the margins. Um, within the Christian kind of culture in North America than Walter Brueggemann. 
And at the same time, he refuses to silence the priests. He refuses to um, stack the decks so that only his side wins. I have, I have one more one more name I want to ask you about. I, I actually took a class on Genesis from Terence Fretheim, and I wondered if you could talk about him. Were you were you guys close? Were you friends? Uh, I, I'm uh, just dedicating a book to my five. Uh, most important Old Testament friends, and he is one of them. Uh, and uh, we have uh, important differences that we continue to debate because he is uh, he is a Lutheran, and I am a Calvinist, and uh, that causes some different uh, interpretive issues between us. But he's uh, he's a good friend, and he is uh, he probably is the best. Uh, Old Testament teacher and interpreter of my generation. He just uh, very, very good. I think I've learned a lot about this just about in my own leadership. You know, I'm I'm sitting here in um, Kansas City um, in a neighborhood that's largely Hispanic and a church that's mostly white, but who is deeply involved in this neighborhood and in some ways trying to live the life of this neighborhood. And I realize that I, I tend toward the prophetic side of things. That's just my bent. It's part of why I love Brueggemann so much. But I also know that my job as a leader here is also, a, there's a priestly aspect to it. There's a bureaucratic as, aspect to it, organizing things and making sure that the priestly um, duties are attended to and and performed um, in a way that's honest and um, builds up the community. And so I, I just know as a leader, part of my job is to make sure there's always a priestly school and a prophetic school within any organization, both within teams and within the organization as a whole. Um, those who make things organized and kind of do the bureaucratic duties that are so important that no community can survive without and at the same time making space for the counter testimony that's always saying well what about the kids in the neighborhood what about the moms and dads in the neighborhood what about the needs of our community and um, what about those who are living on the margins of culture It, we're, we're really trying to help people relinquish a script that is, in a sense, would you say, dehumanizing? Yes, yes, I would. Yeah, yeah. And it is a it is a script, the performance of which uh, can never make you safe and can never make you happy. In Pharaoh's world. You've never made enough bricks yet. Yeah, so we're doing this series at Redemption talking about um, finding the beat in which we're trying to find the rhythms of the kingdom of God in the midst of a culture that really marches to the beat of a different drum. Uh, so, so our social life was very much uh, contained in that. In my family, uh, we had uh, uh, prayers and devotion uh, every night at supper, and I suppose the the defining mark 
was a confirmation instruction, which was taken over from German practice, in which uh, confirmation uh, consisted in two years of instruction in the catechism uh, every week uh, with the pastor, uh, and you memorized the catechism and uh, and some other stuff that was related to it. I love this idea of rhythms, of habits, rhythms, and practices. You know, I talk about these a lot in just in my daily life, and as I'm trying to shape the imagination and the language of my congregation, um, is this idea that that Pharaoh has these expectations of life without limits. Well, as you know, in uh, in uh, Leviticus uh, 25, in that the great text on the Jubilee year, uh, it is provided that uh, every 49 years, uh, property has to be returned to people who have lost it in uh, by economic predators. Uh, but it also provides that the, that the that the land has to rest, and uh, uh, we now know that in the practice of agriculture, uh, that you got to rotate crops, that you got to let land lie fallow, uh, that you cannot force the land uh, to be endlessly productive, or uh, the land uh, will be depleted and will not produce. As you can see in the cotton fields of South Carolina that were farmed to death uh, for overproduction, so it's, the land is just like us. If if you try to overproduce, uh, you become depleted and cannot produce. Uh, I have been uh, uh, spending a lot of time lately reading Wendell Berry, who is a friend of mine, and uh, Wendell Berry is uh, the great uh, advocate of uh, of care for the land uh, that says you you cannot you cannot make the land endlessly produce no matter how many uh, chemical fertilizers you have uh, eventually you will kill it that way uh, and uh, I I think uh, they already knew something about that in ancient Israel. There are limits, and Christians should be the first people um, who come to the table and, and admit, yes, there there are, absolutely are limitations. There, there has to be some way that we can find the rhythm of the kingdom and live according to that rhythm, this rhythm that's, that's wired into the fabric of the, the universe, this rhythm that we're part of every single time there's day and night, you know, every time there's evening and morning the next day. And, and I think that the uh, dominant ideology uh, is uh, very good at revving up our anxieties. Uh, just now it's, it's uh, revved up about immigrants uh, but a variety of ways that that happens. So that Sabbath uh, is an occasion for freedom from anxiety, and the church uh, at its best uh, might be uh, a community of unanxious presence. which is not so easy.
We're, we have to somehow join with the rhythms of the world that God has created and instituted for our benefit. And to see these things is deeply humanizing. Whereas the, the project that Pharaoh has for us, and, and now we could say instead of Pharaoh, we could say whatever, the, the market, um, you know, modern day, late stage capitalism. Um, it, it demands more and more and more and expansion without limits and will take whatever it can get. The, the requirements of sports performance uh, is endless. Hmm. As is everything. You, we, in Pharaoh's world, you've never made enough bricks yet. What Brueggemann does time and time again is he kind of works this dialectic between the world that Pharaoh imagines and the world that God imagines, between the kingdoms of this earth and the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And, and what's, what Pharaoh wants is slaves. And so Pharaoh works in ways that are, you might say, inhuman, inhumane, and dehumanizing. You've, you've also talked about... Um... Uh, sports as the liturgy of empire and in the American uh, consciousness the influence even just of the National Football League on Sabbath practice. Could you talk just a little bit about what you think about that? Well, I, I, I think that the NFL uh, has become uh, the liturgy of American militarism. Uh, all, uh, all the flags and the opening ceremonies and all of that. Uh, uh, the NFL, for a while, had a mantra. Uh, it said, we own Sunday, uh, which seems to me to be a competition with Easter. Uh, they've dropped that happily. But I think all the... the uh, uh, dispute about uh, kneeling for the national anthem uh, is uh, a, a quintessential sign uh, that uh, football is now the liturgical expression of American exceptionalism uh, that will allow uh, no dissent and will not uh, and will not let us expose the racism of American exceptionalism uh, because the NFL is basically uh, white, white people with money uh, watching black people beat up on each other. Mm. Uh, and uh, that's a slight overstatement, but not much. Uh, mm. And uh, so that feeds our sense that Americanism is all about winning uh, and uh, the big triad of the NFL I think is sex, violence, and money. I think this is a rich um, imagery that Brueggemann draws out for the, the rhythms of the kingdom that are meant to be lived and joined in distinction to the rhythms of the culture. One of the things I love about how Brueggemann talks about Sabbath is that it's this picture of abundance. 
that in a world of scarcity that tells us you never have enough, Sabbath is is the the practice that and it's not individualistic. It's it's a communal practice of gathering and saying, how amazing is it that we actually do have enough? I think the the forms of communal practice uh, there there are probably many, but but right up there among them is eating together. And I think singing together, yeah, it's, it's got to be communal. That's right. Yep. No matter what the advertisements tell us, where we never have enough stuff and never have the right stuff, the, the world that God imagines says we actually do have enough and, and have more. We live in a world of abundance if we'll share, if we'll um, believe not just in our in our minds, but in the way that we live our, our lives, that to share everything together is more deep and meaningful than to say what's mine is mine and what's yours is yours, and let's build a fence between the two. You, you have often said, you know, the Sabbath does, does not um, accommodate, uh, you might say, economic realities. It, it means... It means to subvert those. I wonder if you could talk about that dynamic. Well, uh, I, I, I think both of the things you've just said are true. It means to subvert it, and uh, it, it's easy to uh, think that Sabbath is a luxury for, for uh, moneyed people. But what that means is that people, moneyed people who are serious about Sabbath have to be at work politically and economically uh, to create an environment in which other people can celebrate Sabbath. The first contact I ever had with Walter Brueggemann was um, for a, an article I was writing for the Huffington Post. Um, it was it was called, What is the Chief Political Concern of the Bible? And I was just emailing scholars and kind of Christian thinkers, mostly from the academy, to say, what do you think? What do you think the chief political concern of the Bible is? And his response was really telling. He, he wrote, I, I believe that the central political question is the management of public power in order that there should be an economically viable life for all members of the community. Thus, justice is front and center, and some texts, especially in Deuteronomy, are for the distribution of wealth in order that all may be viable. Obviously, such justice is marked by mercy, compassion, and generosity. The purpose is to create a genuine neighborhood for all the neighbors. And this kind of gets uh, to the heart of what he views Sabbath as doing. It's the creation of and the practice of neighbors and neighboring. So it's not, uh, uh, it's not simply private rest and self-indulgence. Uh, it is uh, a devotion to the community. So I'm thinking of that uh, that narrative in, I don't know, it's Mark 2 or 3, where Jesus heals on the Sabbath. And what I, what I think is there is work and there is Sabbath work. 
Mm. Sabbath work is, I think, the political economic effort uh, to create an environment uh, in which Sabbath becomes increasingly possible for lots of other people uh, who are not uh, noticeably privileged. The, the church is meant to be a community in the midst of a culture filled with anxiety. The ch- church is meant to be a community that, that lives as a non-anxious presence, where the rest of the world is caught up in this um, narrative of Pharaoh. The church is free from that. And somebody who's free from that kind of oppression, from that, that incredible drive for more, 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 somebody who's free from that is living a compelling life Devotion to the community. just by virtue of their own humane um, presence and non-anxious presence in an anxious society. This is, this is part of Christian witness, and it's the part that we're missing because we are so shaped by the liturgies of, of culture and media, and we don't have a robust enough Sabbath to um, produce disciples, followers, neighbors, who actually live in a compelling way. And so what we say on Sabbath is, look, we got all the time in the world. We got all day to just sit here and to eat and tell stories and listen to music and go to plays and take walks and just enjoy the goodness of being the children of God. And we also, we have enough so we can afford to have mercy. We can afford to be compassionate. We can afford to be generous because we know we have enough and that God will always take care of us. And when when we need something, there will be other generous neighbors there to share what they have with us. And so we'll always have enough. Well, um, I, I, I... I never reflected on it much, but I think um, um, our our, uh, life uh, on Sunday uh, in a a parsonage with a pastor, uh, we we just didn't do much on Sundays after church. Uh, My mother did uh, cook, and we had a good dinner. but we uh, we had a lot of free time. We would visit people. We would play games together. Uh, that never struck me as very intentional. And we never we never talked about keeping Sabbath. We just kind of uh, took a break from uh, from the rest of how we lived the rest of the week. Uh, and and I would say I'm I have not been in my adult life uh, I've not been a very good Sabbath keeper uh, because it's taken me a long time to uh, figure all that out. I did uh, in my mid adult life I uh, made a decision that I wouldn't watch uh, sports on Sunday anymore and the. Mm-hmm test case for me was when the Cardinals were in the World Series and uh, I didn't uh, I didn't watch it uh, and what I discovered is that that uh, simply the decision about spectator sports has added huge amounts 
of time and energy to my to my Sunday. Working at um, the expression of one's life uh, in a different idiom, uh, and uh, I think that's really a, a, a nice thing to do. It could be uh, uh, it could be having uh, friends with whom one reads poetry or uh, short stories or stuff like that. Anything. Anything that brings generative imagery into one's life uh, to break open the package of certitudes uh, mm. which we've been committed all week. Mm. I think that's brilliant. mention in your book on Sabbath that you you say, as in so many things concerning Christian faith and practice, we have to be re-educated by Judaism. And I, as I read that line again, I realized just how much of my faith journey has, has been, and I'm talking about as a, especially as an evangelical Christian. So, um, so much of our time is spent trafficked in New Testament. I'm just realizing how much of my faith journey, as it begins to deepen, is a re-education by the Hebrew imagination, by the way, largely through through your work. So just, just how badly do contemporary American Christians need this kind of the Hebrew imagination, a re-education by the Hebrew imagination i i i think uh, that uh, the 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 bottom commitment of the jewish tradition is that all life is relationality uh it's not in things it's not in principles it's not in propositions it's not in truths it's not in order it's in relationality that is always filled with surprise and newness and ambiguity uh, that keeps us from settling. And I think, uh, so I learned that from Heschel and from Buber, uh, mm. I think the recovery of that sense of relationality for which the Old Testament word is covenant uh, is is really worth a big effort on our part. The Jewish faith was, for the Hebrew people, shaped as a minority religion. In other words, um, the Jewish faith and the Christian faith, by extension, has never really done very well when it's in power. These people, um, the people of God, they thrive when they are on the margins, when they're not in power. And in fact, when they are in power, it never seems to go very well. And I think this is um, rooted in Brueggemann's own life, you know, his origins um, within the German immigrant community and a father who was um, an evangelical pastor 
among um, Germans who had to be Lutheran. <laughs> and um, also a small town pastor in the Midwest. I mean, it, it doesn't kind of, it doesn't get any more marginalized than that. The 20th century, you know, Germany and America spent the first half of the 20th century at war with one another. And those German immigrants endured a lot of suspicion about their motivations and their where their loyalties might lie. And Walter Brueggemann's father was a pastor during that era in the midst of a German church that was still coming once a, a week to hear um, messages, um, sermons delivered in German. And so there's a sense that his whole life was a little precarious and a little fragile, more fragile than I think the world we imagine now. I think one of the things that that inspires for some people when you, when, I mean, this is common to to all of us, we'll, we'll think back of um, to the way we lived in college, you know, on ramen noodles and, and cooking everything we ever ate in a microwave or, or uh, you know, sleeping on a mattress on the floor because we couldn't afford a bed. And um, even just in the beginnings of careers, there are often these kind of charming stories about how we got by. And it's easy to feel nostalgia for that time. But I, I think that what Brueggemann would say is we're, we're not really missing how fragile it was. We're not missing how precarious it was. It's just that living kind of on the, on the margins, living where we are, are fragile, forces us to reach out toward one another. It's kind of like there's no atheists in a foxhole. There, there's no individualists who are trying to navigate those early fragile years of education or careers or starting up your company. When you're, when you're teetering on the edge, you know how precarious things are and you know how much you need other people. And I think when we look back at those origin stories with a kind of nostalgia, what we're really nostalgic for is that sense of connection. That sense that we're not doing this alone, we're doing it with other people. For which the Old Testament word is covenant. And I think that Brueggemann's view of um, the Jewish slash Christian heritage as flourishing mostly as a minority community and ultimately failing when we get into power kind of pushes us toward a view of our interdependency that I think he roots in Sabbath. Is, is really worth a big effort on our part. That actually we, we are one day a week supposed to re-engage this new interdependent rhythm as part of our Sabbath practice. Well, Dr. Brueggemann, I hope you know um, just how many of us are out here so appreciative of your work. It's had a, a deep impact on my life as a Christian and as a pastor, but also on the life of my church. We just, we, you're, I so appreciate how you have written, um, not just with the academy in mind, but with the church in mind. And so I just want to say thank you 
it, you, your your life and your your work has had such a deep impact on me. So thanks. Well, I'm uh, I'm uh, I, I really appreciate that, and I'm uh, uh, glad to send my good wishes to your uh, church folks. Well, peace good. to you, Dr. Brigham. Thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it.